All right. Genesis 17. I'm going to tell you kind of the flow of this sermon, and that will help you, I think, as I work through it for you to, uh, to follow. So in the intro here in just a second, I'm going to give, out, uh, give you a few questions, questions that this passage is going to kind of conjure up as we go through this, and questions that have historically uh, come alongside of this passage when this passage has been read and studied. So we're gonna, I'm going to give you a few questions to be thinking about. Then we're going to look at Genesis 17. We're going to walk through the whole, the whole chapter and just kind of pull out the high points of the chapter. And then what we're going to do is we're going to jump to the New Testament and we're going to try to answer the question, what does this have to do for us, do with us today? So we're going to get some New Testament commentary. We're going to hear from John the Baptist. We're going to hear from Jesus. We're going to hear from the Apostle Paul. And we are going to, going to see how the Holy Spirit pieces this kind of New Testament commentary into the passage that we're studying today. And so that's kind of how it's going to go. And then at the end, we're going to wrap it up, and I'm going to give you, hopefully, some answers to these questions that we started with. And then, um, as I trust the Holy Spirit to do every, every week, I'm, I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit has a way, without me just providing the practical application for you, the Holy Spirit has a way to do that specifically to you, of you know, how this ends up working itself out through the week. So, and He does that in an infinite amount of ways, in a, in a really personal way. But I'm going to trust Him to do that. So that's kind of how it's going to flow. So we're going to start with um, a few questions that this passage has historically just brought to the surface as people have studied and read the passage. So who are the people of God? That's a big question. Okay, Who are God's people? In Genesis 17, we, we're going to see uh, the, the people of God in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, the, the Israelites, what they would later be named, um, <clears throat> receive a mark called circumcision that would, would be an external sign to themselves and to the world that they are, they are the people of God. Okay, the, the people of God. But there's a question that, that gets kind of, uh, you know, uh, that kind of gets bubbles to the surface every single time for us today, then who are the people of God? It sounds like an easy question, but it isn't. It's not that easy. In fact, different denominations answer this question differently, which is one of the main reasons why there are different denominations. And so the Presbyterian churches and more kind of classic Reformed churches answer this question a little bit differently than some of the classic kind of Reformed Baptistic churches or uh, Baptist churches in general have answered these, this question down through the, down through the ages. Okay? Um, Methodists, conservative Methodists, um, different uh, people just answer this question differently. Who are the people of God? Uh, another question that kind of rises to the surface is, uh, what, is it re- what does it mean for us, or what does it mean to receive the sign of the covenant? If, you're, if you are, after you answer the question, who are the people of God, if you are the people of God, okay, what's the sign that you now are the people of God? Okay, what is that sign? Um, does Jesus do something for his family that Abraham could not do for his? If you don't remember all these questions, it's okay because we're going to come back to them. And so as previously stated, the answers to these questions have caused so much division. And so what I hope to do in this sermon is, uh, is display grace as I ask for grace from you. Because there's differing views of what's called covenant theology and differing views of Israel, who are the people of God. And if you've ever been in an argument about Israel, and, and right now you go into some churches and you'd see the Star of David, for instance, and you'd see a church or a congregation praying for Israel. And if you've ever wondered, well, why do people do that? If you, ever, if you grew up in that environment and then you're now in an environment where people don't pray for Israel, you're thinking, well, what's going on here? There's just differing views 
uh, on this question, who are the people of God and who is Israel? Who's the true Israel? Is it spiritual? Is it natural? Were they, uh, is, it, is it actual promises or was it all fulfilled in Christ? All these questions just kind of cause people to get in, in arguments. And if, let me just ask, have you ever seen anybody arguing about Israel or the questions of, of baptism, for instance, or who are the people of God? Anybody? Okay. So it gets heated and passionate. And I want to avoid being heated and he okay fire passion that's good but when we miss kind of communicate the communication part because we're too busy talking that's not good um and so i'm going to hopefully give grace and then ask if there are differing views in here that you kind of give give grace as well so uh, here's a bible study tip as we begin to look at this passage uh the epistles so Paul's letters, Peter's letters, John's letters, the epistles help us to rightly understand the Gospels. We are not free to interpret the Gospels in ways that the epistles don't interpret the Gospels because after all, the Holy Spirit wrote it all. Okay, Every, Bible in the, every word in the Bible is a red letter word, should be, because it's all equally inspired. It's not that Jesus' words carry more authority than anybody else's. It's all the Holy Spirit. So it's all red letter. The red letter Bible started in the late, late 1800s. And it's led people to say, well, Jesus' words, and unintentionally has led people to say, well, Jesus' words must carry somewhat more authority than the rest of the Bible because, after all, they're in red. Well, all of the Scripture is equally God-breathed. And so the epistles are God-breathed, and it helps us to rightly understand the Gospels. And the Gospels help us to rightly understand the Old Testament. So if we don't have the Gospels, then there's so much about the Old Testament that becomes unclear. And the crazy thing is, when we do understand some things about the Old Testament, it actually helps us understand some things about the New Testament as well. And so it, goes, it all goes together somehow. But think about in, in, biblical interpretation as looking through the backward, backwards lens. Okay, We know the end of the story. Okay, and so as you're looking backwards, you're seeing everything and interpreting everything through the, and through the understanding that Jesus has lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law of God, died a substitutionary death, rose from the grave, and he's one day coming back again. And as you do that, it helps you to rightly understand everything before the Gospels and the Epistles. Okay? Does that make sense? So interpret the Bible backwards. Okay? Now, with all that said, let's look at Genesis 17 and then take a little journey through the New Testament. So Genesis 17, look with me. We're going to read through verses 1 and then all the way down to 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to, to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall so your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring. And after you, throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be their God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after through all their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from a foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought Bought, and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, let's get some of the facts from this chapter. In verse 1, we find out that Abram was 99 years old when God came to him and told him this. If you remember... As we've been walking through Genesis, Genesis 12 is when God came to Abram and called him. Genesis 15 was also very significant because it's when he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness, if you remember that from a while back, a few weeks ago. Uh, And we have this covenant language that, that begins to happen. And here we see God again approaching and talking to Abram, and he does all the talking in this chapter. We don't see Abram talking at all, actually, in the first 14 verses. It's all... God to Abraham. So he approaches him. Abram's 99 years old. And the content of his word starts also in verse, verse 1. It says, walk blameless so I can make a covenant between me and you. And then God would multiply Abram greatly. This language is repeated over and over again. I will make you a father of many nations. Not just one nation, of many nations. And many kings will come from you. I'll make you the father of a multitude of nations. Over and over again, this is repeated. It's like, hey, Abram, I don't want you to forget this. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And through you are going to come many kings and many nations. You're going to be a father of a multitude of nations and kings. So over and over again, it's just kind of repeated and repeated. Verse 3 and 4, God's covenant was Abram. And God would make Abram a father of many nations. Verse 5 and 6, we see Abram's name is changed. And again, he's going to be fruitful and nations and kings are going to come from him. Verse 7, there's going to be an everlasting covenant to be the God of Abraham and his offspring after you. So God is saying to Abram, no, like for your offspring, if you're faithful to this covenant thing, if you're faithful to this whole uh, circumcision deal, then I'm going to be the God of your generations. Come after you and come after you. I will be their God and they will be my people. And I'll give you a land. I'll give you all the land of your sojournings. And so the content of his words continues to come. I'll be the God of Abraham and his offspring after you. In verse 8, this will be an everlasting possession in the land of Canaan. All the sojournings I'm going to give to you this land and it will be yours forever. So it's a lot that comes to Abram. It's kind of like a whirlwind of information from God to him. We see that Abram, when he hears the voice of the Lord... Okay, there's sometimes people on TV when you hear slain to the spirit, it freaks them out and stuff like that. But in the scriptures, when God speaks often, you know what happens? Your head goes to the floor. The holiness of God is revealed and you are slain in the spirit. That may be, there's a twist on TV of what that is, but friends, that's a reality. You get face to face with the living God, well one, you would die, but... You're, I mean, you're, I mean you, you're just, boom, on the floor. And if God, and he's done this throughout history, if God shows up in a unique way, and he's always here every single week. It's not like God is, you know, far distant. He's very near and he's very present within us. But down through the history of the church, there's been this thing called revival. You ever heard of that? Right? Where God, the Holy Spirit, is doing the same thing he always does, in the same, but it's in a more profound way or a bigger way among more people for a longer period of time. 
And there's been rumblings of that in Carbondale before. I've mentioned it a couple times, actually. John Baker was a part of that in the 70s here. There was a pretty distinct move of the Holy Spirit in this way where many people met Jesus, many people were being discipled and growing in the faith. And friends, that can happen today. If God, if He wants to, He would work in such a way and we wouldn't leave here for a week and we would all be nourished somehow or another. We would, we, our bellies, would be, we would be fine without, we're like, oh my gosh, it's Tuesday? Like, what's happening? It feels like it's just like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. God can do that again, and I would love him to do it. It would be incredible. Can you imagine living your life and think about those five years when God did such a work where there were thousands of people that met Jesus across Carbondale, across southern Illinois, who were face-to-face with the living God, and their life was never the same? Man, that would be incredible. Verse 9 through 14, uh, we then see the sign of the covenant. So here is this covenant that was given to Abram, and it was already talked about previously in verses or in chapters uh, 12 and 15. And so we kind of get some of the gaps filled in and some of the I's dotted and some of the T's crossed. But then in verse 9 through 14, we see that there's a sign of the covenant. There's going to be a sign for the covenant people of God that they are actually the covenant people of God. There's going to be a visible sign, and it's this thing called circumcision. So verse 10, it lays out that the covenant side for Abram is keeping this sign. He should keep the sign. So they are going to have to be circumcised. Verse 10, every male must be circumcised. The next scene that we get to next week, uh, <laughs> well, um, we're going to get to this point where everybody gets circumcised in his household. And that adult males would not be fun at all. Um, and... So, I mean, this is very, very serious. I mean, this is a serious thing. And they are going to be marked physically, physically marked. The males in the, in the covenant people of God would be physically marked that would show, I mean, not the world. It's not like they're walking around naked. But it would be the visible uh, external sign that they are God's people. Every male must be circumcised. This sign of being in covenant with God is the circumcision of every male. And then verse 12, every male in the household, even foreigners. So, Abram expresses faith, and then all the males in his house must be circumcised. He's the only one at this point that we know expressed faith, but all of them are circumcised. In verse 14, it's going to be an everlasting covenant. In verse 14, again, if you are not circumcised, you're out. So if there's any males in the offspring of Abraham that are not circumcised, they are not the people of God. Okay? So this idea is they have to be a... In the covenant people of God, you have to have that sign if you were a male. So the question becomes for us, what does this mean for us today? Okay, how, how, what does this mean for us? What are we supposed to understand about it? Well, thankfully, the New Testament does provide some commentary for us. And this is where we may be stretched a little bit. And I'm going to preach from the best of my understanding of this. And I will say, and there's bits and pieces in here, and I'm assuming that there will be some, not all, this may be completely new ground for some of you, where it's just like, yep, sounds great. Uh, continue to study, continue to, to, to look into it. I never want people just to take my word for anything. You wrestle with the word. You have the Holy Spirit of God, and in fact, God will hold you accountable for my preaching. In Galatians, he holds the church of Galatia accountable for hearing false teachers. Not the elders of Galatia for responsibility of having false teaching, the church. So you hear, and you run to the Word every single week. That's what I want you to do. You have the Holy Spirit of God. You wrestle, you study with the Word, 
Ask questions, read commentaries, pray. If you got some weird interpretation that nobody else has, you're probably wrong, okay? But ask questions, grow. We're in this together, so don't just take my word for it. I'm doing the best I can here. And, uh, and then for those who may see it differently, that's okay. Um, but I think you're wrong. No. Uh, okay, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 through 12. We're going to start answering some of these questions about who are the people of God. How are we to rightly understand Genesis 17? Matthew 3, starting verse, in verse 7. This is John the Baptist. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He goes on and says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. John, apparently, in this passage, does not believe that being an Israelite, even circumcised as a male, automatically makes you a child of Abraham. Did you catch that? He said, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now that's interesting. John is bringing some clarity about who has God as father. It's not about having an Israelite father. It's about having God as father, apparently, to John. They need God as father, and they don't have him as father. And yet they're an Israelite. So what's going on here? Who are the people of God? It, it's Wait a second. It's getting a little confusing here, John the Baptist. Are you speaking correctly? Verse 11, the one is to come... Oh, this is verse 11. I didn't read this part. Let me go ahead and read it. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear out the threshing floor and gather, into, in, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John points us to something spiritual, something supernatural, something that the Old Testament, in fact, told us about this Jesus would come and He would baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus would do what the Old Testament said would one day happen. The Spirit would be in the people of God, not just with the people of God. So the promise in Jeremiah and Ezekiel was that all of God's people would have the Holy Spirit in them personally. And apparently these people didn't have God as Father and they didn't have this Holy Spirit thing, this per third person of the Trinity thing. Something's going on and, and what is it? What is going on? What information does John the Baptist have that would seem to bring confusion to the issue of who are the people of God rather than clarity? Because he's looking to an Israelite and saying, you don't have God as Father. Now that's fascinating. John chapter 8, go ahead and turn there. We're looking at a way higher volume of Bible passages today than we typically do. But for this sermon, I thought it was quite necessary. John chapter 8, verse 39 to 47. I'm not going to read the whole part, but if you want, you can, you know, write this down or um, whatever you need to do to remember. Go back and listen to it if you want. Okay, John chapter 8, verse 39 to 47. 
Jesus talking to a group of Jews, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your, that your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, God, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but of he who sent me. Why do you understand, not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. Now, isn't this interesting, Jesus? In verse 39 and 40, to this group of Jewish hearers, Abram, he says to them, Abraham is not your father. In other words, you are not his offspring. Now, okay, now Jesus, what, what, did you, what, you, what he really meant was, this. can you see why the words of Jesus to the Jewish people were so offensive? He just told them instead, yep, yep, you're in the bloodline of Abram, Abraham, you've been circumcised, yep, but you know who your father is, it's not Abraham, it's not God, it's the devil. <laughs> like, man, you know? Um, bold, verse 44, the devil is your father, verse 45 to 47, those of God hear the son, you must hear, not just listen, hear, Jesus is bringing some clarity, because to be a person who has God as father, apparently it involves some hearing, believing, you have to believe the truth that Jesus is saying, some things begin to rise to the surface. He's bringing some clarity. You must hear. That's what it says in verse 47. If you want to be from God, and if you are of God, you've got to hear the words of God, the truth that Jesus is saying. You can't just be in the bloodline of Abraham. You have to hear what Jesus is saying. Turn to Romans 9, verse 6 through 8. Romans 9, we're just going to have a couple more turns here, but I want you to see these. Romans 9, verse 6 through 8. Tucked in, unfortunately, one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible. It, should, it shouldn't be, but fortunately it is. This these words that we hear are so helpful. Verse 6 through 8. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who have descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now again, Pastor Paul He's doing something very consistent. He is 
helping us. He's bringing clarity to the answer, who are the people of God? What does it mean to have God as Father? What does it mean to be a true Israelite? And Paul is telling us it, it doesn't mean just being a phys- in the physical bloodline of Abraham. Not all Israel are truly Israel. They don't all belong to the true people of God. And so again, there's some uh, clarity, I think, being brought to us. At least some continued questions for for all of the people who are the hearers of this, like, wait a second, do we just miss it all these years? Like, what's going on with this whole thing, Paul? In Romans chapter 2, and these, we just got a couple, uh, a couple more. Uh, we got three more verses so, uh, that we're going to look at here. So, so Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. And if you're getting lost here, just write it down and go back and listen to it. Study it for yourself, and hopefully we'll get you back out of the woods here in a second. Verse 28. For one who is a Jew is merely one outwardly. For no one who is a Jew is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Okay, now we're getting, again, a little bit more clarity. We're kind of stepping out of some of the dark, or out of the dark into the light, and we're kind of getting some goggles now and some lenses by which we're able to kind of interpret and see, okay, what's going on? Because apparently the circumcision thing was, was, the way that we rightly understand it, it's teaching us something about the human heart, it's teaching something about the future. This, this physical mark is supposed to help us understand something in the spiritual realm. The inward person. In a world that so highly values so-called external righteousness, in whatever way you define external righteousness, here is God saying that there's things internally that matter. Being an external Christian who does the right things can get you advancement in, in many churches. It can get you advancement in here. But nobody's getting into heaven by anything external, physically external. It's a matter of what's going on inside, the heart level. So this point about circumcision is apparently spiritual. It's a matter of the heart. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. It's not outward and physical? I mean, by definition, circumcision is outward and physical. But apparently not. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is the matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Again, by the Spirit. There's something about the Spirit that's going to do something in the heart that's circumcised. The heart that's circumcised. The Spirit's going to do something here. This outward act is foreshadowing, we could say, in the flesh, what would happen in the Spirit. My father-in-law told me that. I was like, man, that's good. I'm going to steal that, put that down. So this outward act foreshadowing in the flesh what would happen in the Spirit. This is the theme, in fact, of the covenants of God in the Old Testament with people. Everything in the Old Testament is helping us to see. It's pointing us forward. And I was supposed to bring my London Baptist Confession in chapter 7, and I left it by my bed. Do you have it with you? Okay, as Andy gets that, just one second, I'm going to read chapter 7 of the London Baptist Confession on covenants because it's so helpful for, for us. Thank you very much. Um, and here's what it says on 
on covenants. It's so, so helpful in understanding the Old, chapter, or the Old Testament. Okay. This covenant, okay, here, let's start with the first part. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto Him as their Creator, we owe obedience to God as their Creator, yet they could never attained, could never have attained the reward of life by which some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He had been pleased to express by way of covenant. So in other words, unless God came, there would be no way for us to get to Him. So unless God covenanted with us, we're doomed. It goes on this, this covenant, the covenant of God and man, this covenant is revealed in the gospel. First of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman. Now, if you remember, thinking back through Genesis now, everything we've talked about, we've seen Genesis point us to the New Testament, point us to Jesus over and over and over again. We, through the lenses of Christ, have been able to see how these, all these redemptive themes, all these things between God and Abram, between God and Adam and Eve, all of this has been pointing us to, and just it's just clear, it's just we're able to see with the help of the Holy Spirit how this is about Jesus. And this is what this is saying. From Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by further steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. So this is a further step we're stepping on today, this thing of circumcision. Okay, It's bringing clarity here, the circumcision piece. Okay, By further steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. And then it goes on, and that's the main part that I wanted to, wanted to show you. These are steps of revelation forward, unfolding for us until we see the full picture of what God is doing in the cross of Christ, in His life, death, and resurrection. And until Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, there are it, by faith, they were trusting, the people of God were trusting that God was going to do something. It wasn't perfectly clear yet. That's why even in the Old Testament, when, when you think about the afterlife in the Old Testament, there's some things that are even foggy in the Old Testament, both to the positive and negative, where un, revelation is being unfolded. So these steps, we're on the step, and we're bringing clarity now to what the full picture of Jesus really is in the New Testament. So this circumcision thing is really, as we look at it now, okay, it was teaching us that something was going to happen spiritually in the hearts of people one day. Through the nations, through these kings and nations, Abram being a father of multitude of people, it's not just going to be about Israel, it's going to be nations even broader than Israel. Okay? So it's pointing us forward, outside of itself. Galatians 3 and Galatians 6. So we're going to go to Galatians 3, and we're going to read verse 29. And we're going to see a couple staggering, staggering statements. And then we're going to be able to answer some of these questions. It's going to start to bring it home here. Verse 29, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So who are Abraham's offspring? What do you have to be to be Abraham's offspring? It starts with an N, I-N. In who? In Christ. If you are in Christ, we'll say it the other way, then you are what? Abraham's offspring. These pieces begin to be put together a little bit, okay? So you're Abraham's offspring if you are in Christ. Now, this begins to be personal. You remember when Pastor Paul in Galatians chapter 2 said, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lived in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
For if righteousness were gained by the law, Christ died for no purpose. And I missed something in there. But the point was, Christ was deeply personal to the Apostle Paul. This had, it was personal. He was personally converted by Jesus. Personal. You're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you are now the offspring of Abraham. Now, Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, and this is the last of the turning, and then I'm going to just read some passages after this. And by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit is going to bring us to tithe all this together. Verse, chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. But a new creation. Okay, being the people of God has to do with the cross of Christ. It's all about the cross, and it's not about a work of the flesh. What counts is a new creation. And the question then becomes, are you born again? Do you have the Holy Spirit of God within you? That's what it means. Are you in Christ? This is not about, do you have the mark? Do you come from a certain family? Does, the, does your family lineage have 365 generations of preachers? Does your parents, do they have faith? What matters is a new creation. Are you a new creation? Have you been circumcised of heart? Now we can start to answer these questions we started with. Three questions, and then we're going to go through them. Who are the people of God? What does it mean for us? And what does Jesus do for his family that Abraham could not do for his family? Okay, three questions. Let me say them again. Who are the people of God? What does this mean for us? What does Jesus do for his family that Abraham could not do for his family? First, who are the people of God? The New Testament brings clarity. Okay, In the Old Testament, you would have Israel. And within Israel, you'd have people like Abraham who had faith, and then you had his household. And all the men in the household, whether they expressed faith or not, received the mark of the covenant. For instance, not for instance, this is the reason, by the way, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, those who would ascribe to classic covenantal theology, would say today, now that the sign of the covenant is baptism, and because Abram expressed faith, and the men in the household, the children, whether they expressed faith or not, baptism could come before faith. Is what they say, because circumcision was before faith. Okay? So they'd be circumcised, and then they would later on either express faith as the covenant people of God or not. So within the Old Testament, there is this idea that you could not express faith, but you could have this external mark, and you could still be called the people of God in the Old Testament. But then this clarity gets brought to the surface in the New Testament, and they say, hold on a second. Not all Israel actually belonged to Israel. There's something happening with the Holy Spirit of God where now... No longer are we going to have this kind of this mixed group of people who externally have the sign but don't have faith. Now, what matters is circumcision of heart. It's about the internal work. Those who are a new creation, the circumcised heart, those who have faith in Jesus, those who are in Christ. So who are the people of God? Those who have been born again. This is how... 
most non-denominational people and Baptisty people down through the years have answered this question. Who are the people of God? Only those who have repented and believed in Jesus. Those who have been regenerated and who are born again, who have the Holy Spirit, who have been circumcised in heart and who have been brought from death to life and who are now a new creation. That's how we answer who are the people of God. Okay? What does it mean for us? Well, it means that believers in Jesus, then those who are in Christ, receive a sign of being in Christ, and it's called baptism. But we believe that baptism is the public identifier and appeal to God from a person who has been regenerated already, and that regeneration led to repentance and faith. So those who, verse, or Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, so those who received his word were baptized. So we, we believe that repentance and faith has to come before we receive the sign of baptism. And we have godly brothers and sisters all over this, even in this town, who don't see it that way. And there are brothers and sisters. And yet, I think, by the limited understanding that God has given me, and with these scriptures, I think that's what the New Testament is teaching us. That to be in Christ, you can't be in Christ without repentance and faith. You can't be born into this thing. It's not about your family lineage. It's not about being an Israelite. You can't get into this thing without repentance and faith. So those who received his word were baptized. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. I think that means that you have the ability, by God's grace, men and women got baptized. And there isn't, their children getting baptized here. This is those who have received this word and believe this word who get baptized. In Acts chapter 18, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So we see that this belief happens, and a man of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So this household heard Paul, they believed, and then after belief, the entire household is baptized. And so I think this means for us that if you are in Christ... We walk in obedience and get baptized. And for my son, I pray for the day, I long for the day that my son becomes my brother. That my son becomes my brother. Because right now, according to God's word, my son is not my brother. He's just my son. And there is going to be a day, by God's grace, I believe this, where my son becomes my brother. And I long for that day. I pray for that day. But until then, until he has that circumcised heart, until he's brought to life, we cannot rightly baptize him and say that we believe he belongs to Christ. We don't know yet. We believe that that's going to be the case. But until there's repentance and faith, we want to guard what it means to be in Christ. We want to guard the baptismal waters and reserve it for only the sign for the people of God in the New Testament who have, who have had that circumcised heart, who have believed, believe, believe, believe. So those are the first two questions. What, who are the people of God? What does it mean for us? Three, what does Jesus do for his family that Abram could not do for his family? Jesus was the true blameless one. Remember, Abram, be blameless so that I may make a covenant with you. 
Okay? Jesus was the true blameless one, and he loses none of his family. Friends, there are people in Abram's family, clearly, that were not Israel, that didn't express faith at all. And yet with the true family and this whole household idea in the New Testament, who, who is the people of God? The house of God. It goes beyond borders nationally. It goes beyond racial divides, racial lines. Like this, None of us here, a few of us, some of us are related, like the whole Perry section here. But, um, but you know what? You know what's a greater identity biblically than the last name Perry? Jesus. They're brothers and sisters. Like, that, that's the family of God. So Jesus does for his family what Abraham could not do for his family. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. And the primary question is not, are you Abraham's offspring, but are you in Christ? Abraham and his household points us to God and his household. Jesus does a good job as a faithful big brother. And he comes and he gets his family. And so his household receives the sign of being in his household. Baptism. But how do we know we're in his household? Through belief, through repentance and faith. You can't be born into this thing. We cannot be born into this thing. So final thoughts. Andy and you guys can come up here. Final thoughts. You're either in Christ or you're not. The scriptures don't really give us this third option here. There are sheep and there are goats. They're regenerate and unregenerate. They're spiritually dead or spiritually alive. You're in Christ or you're not in Christ. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. So the appeal then for us today is be, believe and be baptized. If you're not a believer, then the, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. That is the appeal. Appeal to God for a clean conscience through baptism. Express faith through baptism in the work of Jesus. And some of you, if you're in Christ in here and you've not been baptized, it's time to get baptized. We can do it. It's a matter of obedience. Now, for those who are in Christ already, and you have been baptized, get this. I want you to get this. God is not after an external sign. He's after your heart still to this day. The Christian life is not simply about external but internal transformation. Internal transformation leads to more and more godly living. Examine yourself today. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and show you, do some root work in your life. So if there are fruit sins, ask the Holy Spirit to shine a light on them and then follow that root back because he's after the circumcision of your heart and he's still in pursuit of your heart. Then today, as the people of God who have the Spirit of God within you, repent and walk in obedience today. Re repent, change, and he's after your heart. Consider your family lineage. Are there good men and good women in your family lineage? There may be. Praise God, that'd be a blessing. Or are they bad men and bad women in your family lineage? Here's the thing. We'll talk about identity here. Say you have a dirtbag family. Terrible men and terrible women. And family name has been a cause for shame, not of honor for you. Let's say that's you. You have a better family identity. You're part of the family of God. And there are godly men and women down through the centuries that are your lineage. And with honor, you can look back and say, God, thank you for my true family. 
Thank you for godly men and women that I can look back and say, by the grace of God, there's my identity in the work of Jesus and his people, not in my family name. And if you have a great name, the tendency is to believe your family unit is somehow more important than this family. And if you have a great family life and a great family name and a long lineage, then this honoring the family name can become even more important than honoring the name of God. And I want you to hear this as well. You have a better family lineage than your great lineage. The people of God, that is your true household. The question then, again, I keep saying the question then is again, probably like 15 times in the sermon. It's not about being born into a Christian family. Are you a part of God's family? Jesus loses none of his brothers and sisters. He will not lose you. God is the God of Abraham and his offspring. And we, by God's grace, are one of those. And we, by God's grace, have God as Father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. And uh, Jesus, I thank you for your life, death, and resurrection. That you are the great blameless one. You are the one who does a better job than Abraham. You're the one who gathers a family for your heavenly Father and lives a perfect life, dies a substitutionary death, and raises from the grave. And then the Spirit of God, thank you for coming and regenerating us and indwelling us. It's not like the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit of God will come and hover over us and empower us to do some great mission. But now, Holy Spirit, you have come and circumcised our heart, and now you have lived, you are living and dwelling in us. And by the grace of God and the grace of God alone, we are your family. And so thank you for that. Continue to pursue our hearts. We know you will. Continue to help us to be repentant and to change. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we sing to you. Holy Spirit, pull application points in deep into the heart of these hearts of our men and women here, and boys and girls and students as we leave this week. Remind us, and you just apply what you want to apply from this sermon from this morning. I trust that you will help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship.